prophetically looking at prophecy. We have Zechariah 9.9. The prophet Zechariah had told Israel that at the time of their deliverance, this would happen. This is what he, this is what he wrote. Rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. Jesus comes in the very manner described by the prophet. Jesus organizes the whole thing. He takes pains to make sure that he enters the city in this regal, kingly way that would be recognized as a claim to kingship, both historically and prophetically. So that's one way that he asserts his authority. He does it in two other ways. The the second way that he asserts his authority is that he cleanses the temple. This appears to be his first priority. It's the very next thing we're told after he comes into the city. Comes in in a regal way, in a kingly way, and then he takes it upon himself to go and decide what belongs in the temple and what doesn't belong there. And he drives out that which does not belong there, that which is an offense to God by his, its presence in the temple, the place where God is worshiped. So he, he takes the authority on himself to decide what gets to be in the temple. During these festivals, when people were making pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the, the vendors would set up shop in the, in the temple. And you know how you feel when you, when you go to the airport or you go to the movie theater and you, you pay like 10 bucks for a hot dog? How that you get way overcharged for everything? That's what was happening in the temple. Because the travelers that would come from the villages surrounding Jerusalem and from the scattered parts of Israel needed stuff once they got to Jerusalem, but it was too cumbersome to bring it all with them. So they had to buy stuff when they got to Jerusalem. And the vendors and the money changers were making a killing off of the exchange rate and over what they were charging people for this stuff. That's what was happening. Worshippers were being taken advantage of, and Jesus threw them out. He didn't have any jurisdiction over the temple. Officially, from a human point of view, but he asserts his unilateral authority to decide what belongs in the temple. That's the second way that he asserts his authority. There's a third way. As if all of this isn't enough, riding into the city as a king, clearing out the temple, we see in verse 47 that he was teaching daily in the temple. That's the third way that he asserts his authority. He's teaching in the temple. As far as we can tell, typically when he would come to Jerusalem, he would do his teaching in other parts of the city, like the Mount of Olives that overlooks the temple. It's outside the temple. He would teach his disciples out there. Now, on this trip, he's encroaching on the territory of the official religious teachers of Israel. He's standing in their place, teaching the people of Israel in the official way, in the temple. He's the teacher, saying what he wants to say. He's teaching the people, the place where 
the professionals exercise their authority. And he's doing it, according to verse 47, he's doing it daily. So Jesus has not entered the city quietly. He enters in the most confrontational way possible. He asserts his authority. And we know that he's not misunderstood. Like, the religious leaders get the message loud and clear because the next thing that's going to happen, we'll talk about this next Sunday, so you get into chapter 20, see chapter 20, verse 2, all the religious leaders come to him and say, tell us by what authority you do these things. Like, what are you doing? Where, how dare you assert this kind of authority here? Where did you get this authority? So they push back. So we see that they understand that Jesus has asserted his authority. Now, what, is this, what does all of this have to do with you? And what does it have to do with me? Well, we say that we're interested in more people um, coming to know Jesus Christ. Do we not talk about that all the time? Desiring to see other people trust him walk with him, follow him, be saved by him. One of the things that can happen in pursuit of that goal is that we might be tempted to soft-sell the authority that Jesus has over a person. The authority of Jesus to come into a person's life and totally take it over, totally disrupt it. We might be so eager for someone to trust Jesus that we never get around to saying, oh, by the way, expect your life to be completely disrupted. We somewhat casually toss around the phrase, invite Jesus into your life. Like, do you know what that means to invite Jesus into your life? He doesn't come quietly. He comes with all power and authority. It's not like inviting a friend over for dinner where the friend comes over and they just kind of politely go along with everything that you have planned for the evening. Don't cause any offense. Yeah, let's do this. And then they go on their way at the end of the engagement. When we see Jesus enter Jerusalem here in Luke 19, one of the things we have to understand is that the way he enters the city is the way he enters your life. With complete power and authority. You are not calling the shots anymore. When Jesus enters your life, he takes his place on the throne and commands you to not do what you want to do. And he commands you to start doing what you don't want to do. He doesn't come over like a friend comes over. This is a king. He has the authority and the power to clear the idols out of you. You are that temple. He gets to decide what belongs in your mind and what doesn't belong in your mind. And he takes his place in your life as teacher, your daily teacher. He arrives and he clears out the competitors and he stays and he teaches with all authority. The the main point today 
for everyone, whether you have believed in Jesus for salvation or whether you have not. The main point is to make sure that none of us have a, has, have a misconception of who Jesus really is. We want to make sure that we're not looking at a Jesus that does not exist, at a Christ of our own creation. And everyone can fall into this trap. Many Christians fall into the trap of believing in a Jesus that saves but does not lead. As in, yeah, Jesus is in my life. Yeah, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, he saved me. Great. Okay, well, what's happening now? What's he doing in your life now? Where is he working? How is he growing in you? Who are you investing in? How are you fulfilling the Great Commission? What's happening since Jesus is Lord of your life? And then blank stares. A lot of us would say, I don't know. But he's Lord. We have bought into a Jesus that saves but doesn't lead. He doesn't make forward progress anywhere. On the other hand, many non-Christians fall into the opposite ditch. They fall into the trap of believing in a Jesus that leads but doesn't save. As in, yeah, we love the ethic of Jesus. Like, love is the ethic, is the ethic. We love the ethic. Kindness to everybody. Everyone has value. I'm all for the ethic of Jesus. Be like him. Love your enemies. Be kind to everyone. Love everybody. Jesus, the great teacher. Jesus, the great moral example. But don't talk to me and say that Jesus died for my sins because I'm not good enough to please God just as I am. Don't tell me that I need to repent and trust in his death on my behalf for my sin because I'm offensive to God. Don't tell me that I need to be saved. See, that's a Jesus that leads but doesn't save. Is there anyone who's willing to take the one whole true Jesus Christ, Son of God, who saves and leads, are you willing to take him? Don't fool yourself. Jesus presents himself as king, the one with the absolute right to rule over the city and over you. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, Son of God, for forgiveness of your sins, ask yourself today, where am I refusing and resisting his rule. What, what corner of my life have I placed off limits from him? You will, be, you will be restless, and you will be agitated, and you will be angry, and you will project that stuff on everybody else until you get that settled. If you're withholding part of your life from the person you say is your Savior and your Lord, you will be unsettled, not at peace, Agitating everyone around you, you'll be angry until you give that over to the Lord Jesus. Where are you not yielding and obeying his teaching? One of the the major applications of this passage is that submitting to the rule of Jesus brings peace. 
This is the thing that makes for peace, submitting to his lordship. Submitting to and resting in his rule over you. We think our life will be worse if we submit to his rule. It will be peace for you. It's an eternal decree. In Luke 19, Jesus asserts his authority, and we notice the three ways that he does that. And it's not a surprise that his authority is rejected. We see the religious leaders reject his authority in, in two ways. First of all, they want him to tell his disciples to shut up. Teach or rebuke your disciples. They don't agree with this praise Jesus message that his disciples are proclaiming. They want that stopped. Second, they begin planning to destroy him. That's verse 47. That's how we really, really know that they don't agree and that they're rejecting his authority. That's a pretty clear rejection. The principal men of the people, priests and the scribes, are seeking to destroy him. What do we want to say about this response by the religious leaders, about how they go immediately to the destruction card? What do we want to say about the fact that they don't consider, like, any other options that might be kind of more middle-of-the-road options, like trying to have him put in prison, like, like John the Baptist had been put in prison? What about the option of just ignoring him and hoping that he goes away? Or they could heighten their smear campaign, like they had been smearing his name, saying that he is insane, saying that um, he has a demon, he's in league with Satan. They could have ramped that up. They'd been doing that already. They set aside all of those options and moved toward destruction. Why is that significant? It's significant because it reveals the striking lack of any kind of middle ground once we've seen the real Jesus Christ. The way that Jesus has presented himself on this day, riding in as a king, taking over the temple, granting himself the right to clean it out and to control what is taught, When Jesus Christ presents himself in all of his regal power and authority, there are only two options. Option one, get on board and submit to his kingship. Submit to his authority. Option number two, destroy him. Take him out completely. Jesus has forced the issue. He, He has revealed who he truly is. He won't be marginalized. That is not an option on this day, and it's not an option for you either. When it comes to Jesus, there is no middle ground between bow and destroy. Are you imagining that there is that kind of middle ground? And are you occupying that middle ground? When you die and you stand before the great I am who made you and who made everything, 
there will not be a third option. You will either stand before him as someone who has embraced his son as the cherished only hope of the world, or you will appear before God as a member of the rebellious race who joyfully put his son to death. There's no middle ground between those two scenarios. Don't imagine that in heaven there's this convention hall off to the side where the good people of the world are clinking their glasses together and remembering the good times and looking with some disdain at those radical people over there who turned their back on the world to follow Jesus Christ. That room does not exist. That room of God's allowance whereby he says, yeah, you weren't so bad. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't bow to my son Jesus. You didn't name the name of Jesus, but you were pretty good, so you get to be over there. That simply doesn't exist. As the late Tim Keller put it, um, whom we lost this year, Jesus demands of us all, crown me or kill me. It's that simple. Luke 19 shows us how he left no other option open. Shows us how he made sure everyone knew the authority of his regal person. This is his assertion. This is his claim. This is him wiping out any kind of middling, condescending, false notions of who he is. Now, the appropriate response to him is repentance. What is that? What, is, what does that mean? That, that's, a, that's a very churchy word, repentance. Repentance looks like you getting real with yourself in your own heart and you taking ownership of your desire to live your life independent of God. You taking ownership of your own low views of Jesus and asking God to be merciful to you and open the door for you to begin to follow Jesus. The job of a, a preacher is to present Jesus Christ as clearly as possible. To present him as the Bible presents him. To set Jesus before people so people can have a clear look at him, at who he actually is, and make their response to him. I have tried to do that today. To the best of my ability, I have tried to set the actual Jesus Christ before you, not the Jesus of your own creation, so you can make your response to him, whether you are already a follower of his or not. And now the decision is yours. You either crown him or you kill him. What is your response to the Jesus who is actually there? There is one more thing that I'd like to notice with you. It's the middle part of this passage. Um, 
to the, the lament part of the passage, verses 41 to 44. A lament is an outpouring of grief or pain in response to difficult circumstances. In this case, Jesus is the one who's making the lament. And I want to notice together who the lament is for. Because we might think that under these circumstances, Jesus coming into the city knowing that he's going to die, that he will be the one tortured and killed, betrayed by his closest friends. We might think that the lament the appropriate lament at this moment would be for him. He's the one that's going to suffer. He does lament, but not for himself. There's no self-pity in his words. There's no outcry from him against the unjust treatment that's coming upon him about how bad these people are and lamenting all of the evil that will come to him. Notice who the lament is for. The lament is for the people of the city. Jesus himself weeps for people who do not accept his kingship. He weeps for them. We might have expected Jesus to be angry with the people. You know, that's what a a mere human does. When, when a human is not granted the dignity and shown the respect or honor that they deserve, they, we respond with anger, indignation. Just think about how our own human leaders respond whenever they feel like they're not being respected or being shown the honor that they deserve. Think of the angry responses to people who reject their leadership and the, the vitriol. That's how a human leader responds to being treated like this. Jesus is no mere human. He is the Son of God. He is God, and he is man. He is the God-man, and this is how the God-man responds to the rejection of his authority. Not with anger and self-pity. He weeps for the people of the city and the destruction that they will experience because they reject him when they could have had peace. The the immediate reference here is the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That's the immediate reference. The whole city is going to be destroyed about 40 years from the time of Jesus speaking. Rome will come and burn everything to the ground, temple included. It's the immediate reference of his words. But there is also an eternal reference to his words something that will always be true. Those who accept the kingship of Jesus enter into his kingdom of eternal peace. And those who reject his kingship enter into eternal destruction apart from, away from, the glorious presence of the king. Now, in light of that reality, in light of the reality that some people will reject his kingship and spend eternity apart from the presence of God. How do you want God to respond to that reality? How do you want someone who is God to respond to the reality of human suffering 
when there could have been peace. The God-man weeps for that outcome. That any human made in the image of God would reject their creator and the peace that they long for and choose destruction. The lament offered here by Jesus is for you if you reject his kingship. Now, I'm a real person. I know that I'm talking to people who think that they're doing just fine without Jesus in this life. I know that you think you're fine without Jesus. And you know what? I agree with you. It's possible to be happy and completely fulfilled in this life without Jesus Christ. I wholeheartedly agree with you. And you know what? The Bible agrees with you. Psalm 73. It's 100% possible to be completely happy, completely satisfied in this life without Jesus Christ. It's just not possible in the next life. My job is to preach about the life to come. The life that no one believes is coming. The life that only exists in the promise of God right now. The life that you can't see. Your soul will never die. Your body will die. Your soul will exist forever. God created that soul. It will always be here. Either in the renewed creation under the kingship of Jesus in peace or apart from him in pain and lament. I can't summon the emotion to weep for you. I can't summon enough compassion and love for you to weep for you because you're rejecting Jesus. That's, I am a self-centered human. I can't summon enough emotion to, to weep over that decision. I'm just another person who needs Jesus just as badly as anyone else, and maybe more so. But Jesus, your maker, he loves you. He weeps over you. He's the one who can and does have compassion on you. He's the good shepherd. Look to him. Rejoice greatly because your king is coming to you. What kind of a leader do you want to follow? The one you've been waiting for is finally here, humble and mounted on a colt. And this king does not ride into the city to subject it to violence like every other human king. This king rides into the city to be subjected to violence himself. To save. God bearing our punishment to save us. Have you ever heard that there's a king that died for you? His name is Jesus Christ. He's the one we worship. Heavenly Father, 
we lift our eyes to look at this beautiful king. We're so disappointed with our human leaders. No one is good, not one. Even leaders of institutions, which are holy, like the church, none of us are good, not one. Thank you that in fullness of time, you sent forth your son as king to come in in purity and righteousness and assert his authority over us. That's such a good thing for us. Let every heart bow before him. He is our deliverer. He is our restorer. He's the one who makes us right with each other and with you. I pray that now you would open eyes, unlike this day that we read about where people looked with Jesus, looked on Jesus with eyes that did not see his kingship. I pray that today, on this day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, eyes would be open to his beauty and his kingship, that we would join the crowds shouting, Hosanna, save us, Lord Jesus.